0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Critical Q&A for 2022. Uh, this is the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. All right, guys. So uh, here we go. Boy, rock'em, sock'em beginning to 2022. I hope, I pray, I uh, cross my fingers <laughs> that I think happy thoughts. That, uh, that this year is going to be um, better than last year uh, in a lot, of lot of ways. And if you guys listen to my podcast, which was a year in review, uh, sort of looking at all the Scientology news and a few other things, um, then you'll know that I am trying to maintain a positive, uh, you know, optimistic outlook on things and a lot of good reasons to do so, especially in the world of Scientology and in general awareness about destructive cults out there Um, without getting into all the craziness of all the craziness. And there's a lot of craziness, of course, to get involved in. But uh, here we are to discuss uh you know coercive control manipulation influence and destructive cults so let's go ahead and stick with that nick c one of the tools Scientology uses for attracting new members is the so-called oxford capacity analysis For the benefit of the fellow listeners, the OCA has no relation to either the city or the university. It is a questionnaire devised by Ray Kemp in 1959 and eventually attributed to Hubbard. The test is administered to random passerbys, often in public spaces, such as street fairs. The OCA consists of 200 questions. After the respondent answers the questions, test results are printed out in the form of a graph, and the person administering the test explains to the respondent what the graph supposedly shows. The OCA is supposedly designed to elicit problem areas in the respondent's life. In reality, its purpose is to entice the test subject into visiting the local org to find out how Dianetics and Scientology can help them with the problems supposedly identified by testing Please correct me if my description is off. I have heard that very rarely the OCA produces results that the person administering the test must interpret as, we can't help you. Is this true? If so, what would produce this kind of outcome? Would it be a trouble-free person or an irredeemable basket case, or is it something else entirely? All right, Nick, thank you very much for this uh, well-described question here, and I will say only to correct you that the OCA is not really used in street fairs or out on the street to get people into the churches or the orgs. Um, they are uh, There are testing centers that are set up to bring people in so that they will get tested, and then they could get sent off to the major org if they have a remote test center sort of set up. But very, 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 very few places have anything like that. I think Seattle is the only one that comes to mind right away. And um, so usually they do it in the org. And the, and the sort of outreach activity you describe more often now is, and has been for forever, is pinch tests and tests. Um, uh, with the meter, they do these things called stress tests and they they uh, try to entice you with the e-meter and it's uh, scientific rendering of your uh, day-to-day problems. And that's what's supposed to entice you to then buy a book, which then gets you into the org or they'll try to schedule to come into the org to do the testing there. And they control the whole line and kind of run you through it. And the idea is that you we, we come in, you do the test, you wait for the results, they sit down, they interpret the results for you, and then they try to sell you something based on those results. So, uh, so most of what you described is 100% accurate. Um, so that all being said, in terms of what kind of results you could get, there isn't a result that I'm aware of. And I did OCA evaluations and I read the materials when I was in the church about OCAs and about how they are graded. Um, I, I test. I, I I did grading. I understood the testing manuals. I you know I was pretty familiar with it. It wasn't a passing thing for me, and I never saw a result that was okay. Kick the guy out the door, but there are a couple results that come to mind for me that might make a test interpreter or a salesperson give up more easily on whether somebody is um, a pro- a prospect or not. And. Um, I I thought of, off the top of my head, three things. Now, of course, you know, maybe there is, you know, because there have been changes in Scientology since I left, I always have to allow for the fact that maybe Miscavige introduced some idea that there are people who come in who can do a test. And there are certain results that are just unacceptable, but that wasn't the case as of 2013 when I left. So what I can say about this is there are um, there's actually you might be interested to know there's very little from L. Ron Hubbard himself on what the OCA actually means, what the test results are. Um, He he was pretty broad in his uh, interpretations of how the test works, and he said that if that if the test is low on the left and low on the right. In other words, if it was kind of an arc, kind of a graph, or you know, it was low here and then it kind of went up and in the middle area and then crashed on the right, that meant that the person was out of valence and psychotic, which means they were being out of valence. Means you're being somebody else. You're you're you you've cloaked another personality over yours, and you're now exhibiting behavior and symptoms or or. Uh, behavior and and language and mannerisms that are very much like somebody else's personality that you've taken on that's called being in somebody else's valence in Scientology and um, a valence is a word in Scientology for a personality or a package of of behaviors and and ideas and and uh, beha- and mannerisms and stuff that that would demonstrate a person's personality. So you find people out of valence by being their mother or being their father or being some famous person or being an authority figure who they think they need to emulate and it becomes in Scientology it's it's sort of formulated as a as a subconscious construct more so than something that you're knowingly doing. But Um, Clearly, you know, you're doing it because you feel either inadequate yourself or you feel that this other personality is benefiting you somehow. Hubbard said to one degree or another, everybody's out of valence because you have a body, because you are influenced by other people. And the true core essential thing that is you uh, wouldn't really want to be involved with any of this anyway, right? So to the, even you know to that degree of even being here, you're out of valence. But with the test, with the OCA, it means you're really in somebody else's headspace, and the answers apparently are supposed to reflect that. Uh, somehow they're supposed to be able to divine that this is true uh, of you. Uh, by answering questions like, do you uh, like to browse railway timetables when you're bored? Or uh, are you generally happy? Or do you feel that the modern system of prison without bars is doomed to failure? These are the kind of questions you're answering in this test, right? And it's supposed to determine these deep you know, things about you and your identity, which is just nonsensically silly. But um, but that's the result, is low on the left. And then low on the right means you're radically, horribly, terribly out of communication. So low on the left means you're basically very unhappy, out of sorts, not getting along with other people very well. And low on the right, out of communication, low responsibility, I believe, means that you are psychotic. So those two things together could tell a test evaluator, eh, maybe this isn't somebody I want to spend a lot of time on. But that's, uh, that's all according to the individual test evaluator or salesperson to make that call. I never saw anywhere in Scientology materials that a person who, who is low on the left and low on the right is unteachable or is unsellable or is somebody we shouldn't sign up. But it occurs to me that might be one reason somebody might, might look at that test result and go, oh, wow. Another one is if the test results are all along the top. Just a, just a nice, even, everything's around 100, 90, 80 band. Because the test goes at the top is 100, then it goes down to zero, and then it goes down to minus 100. So you can have negative results along the bottom and very, very positive results along the top. So if all the, the, the I think there's 10 personality traits that are graphed on the OCA. And if they're all along the top, then you are considered what's called in Scientology feedy-weedy. You're a Theddy Weedy case, and a Theddy Weedy case is defined as somebody who never, ever did anything wrong to anybody, and could never even conceive of doing anything wrong to anybody ever. I mean, you, you, you get this idea that it's somebody who is living a life of pure delusion. Even according to Ellen Hubbard and Scientology standards, they are just irresponsible, grossly so, so irresponsible, so not themselves out of valence, even that. They act as though the world is nothing but sweetness and light, and everybody's doing the best they can possibly do. And isn't everything wonderful? And it's very kind of Pollyannish, you know, very, ah, ah, ah everything's great. That's Thedy Weedy, right? Oh, I could just never imagine doing anything wrong to anybody. Hubbard really, that really grated on Hubbard's nerves, that kind of attitude, and he called that a feety weedy case. And if a person comes in and fills out an OCA and there's nothing wrong, you're probably looking at a feety weedy person because everybody's got something wrong with them and everybody usually has enough self-awareness to know something's up with them, even if they're not necessarily willing to tell you about it. Uh, And the test results are supposed to reflect that. So that could be another reason why a salesperson might pass or go, "Mm, yeah, this isn't really for you and just kind of move along. Finally, the third reason I came up with as to why this might occur, why it might be that a person will come in and do the test, get their results, and the person says, yeah, we really can't do a whole lot for you. Is it might be that that result comes after the salesperson already tries to get the person, tries to uh, question them, ask them about their test results, go, you know, poke and prod and get the person talking. And the person doesn't talk. They won't talk. They won't say anything. They won't open up. You know, they're just not into telling this stranger about themselves and their personal life and their personal problems. And so if the test evaluator or the salesperson can't break through, then they'll give up. They, they could easily give up. I mean, the, you're only going to go so far with somebody, especially on the front lines. You know, when somebody's already an established Scientologist and they've already, you know, sort of drunk the flavor aid, so to speak, and they're in, uh, then you can put, you know, you can really apply a lot more pressure to them and you can, uh, you know, wear them down and then you can spend hours working them over and you're, and you're doing that for significantly more money. Than what you're doing at the beginning, opening gate, where you're just trying to sell the guy a book, get him a cheap course, get him some cheap auditing, and and get him started. So, um, so the you know so the amount of time you're going to put into that is going to be significantly less. And those are the three things I could come up with. And I hope that that um, gives some clarification to how that works. Jonathan Perry. With Mark Bunker's video of November 29th, 2021, showing him talking turkey about Scientology, things are starting to get real and going on record. What do you think would happen to David Miscavige's reputation within Scientology if they lost their tax exemption? That brings up many questions, but maybe you could paint a picture from everything to how they would spin it to how it would affect Sea Org members, public staff, OTs, Tom Cruise, etc., Would Tom Cruise come out and speak publicly against this attack on the church or get involved at all? Would Miscavige simply blame it on all the members or would the members start to blame it on him? Would it affect how everyone got paid and the cost of services? I understand that your response would be complete conjecture, but I'm still curious about what you think might happen. Okay, Jonathan, thank you for this. And this is far from the first time I have uh, asked or answered this question about what would happen If Scientology loses their tax exemption. In fact, I dedicated a chapter of my book to how they got their tax exemption back and why this was so important to them. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so. Um, What I want to say here, and bringing this up again, is that yes, the heat is on in Clearwater right now on Scientology, and this is a really good thing. Aaron Smith Levin's uh, city council run that he's making this year is. Definitely producing some uh, ripples in the Scientology world there, and Miscavige is desperately trying to make a deal with the city council and the new city manager in order to get this property of land he wants. You know, one wonders if there isn't secret buried treasure there from L. Ron Hubbard or something the way Miscavige is salivating over this property but um, he just has to have it. And so now they're trying to uh, get in with the city council and the new city manager, John Jennings, again. And John Jennings appears to be playing ball and bending over backwards to do anything Miscavige wants. And that's quite disgusting and sad. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But the good news is that with Aaron Smith-Levin and Mark Bunker there, they have a real fight on their hands, Uh, Scientology does. And I say, you know, it's high time. And the citizens of Clearwater are saying it's high time. So I wish the city council would, you know, kind of take note of that and get to it. Uh, As far as the tax exemption goes, um, it would be um, not necessarily in and of itself, the death knell for Scientology if it were to lose tax-exempt status. It operated without tax-exempt status for decades, remember, and they would go right back into defense mode, circle the wagons mode, and they would not pay the taxes, and that tax bill would accumulate as they fought it again the same way they fought it before. I mean, there really wouldn't be a whole lot of difference for any reason I could think of, especially since Miscavige still runs the show, and people would Um, He would spin it in such a way that the Scientology public would get a target, whether it's the IRS or it's Leah or Mike or me or other people, or it's some other agency, or it's the government itself, or, 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 or. There are a million ways Miscavige could spin something like that. A lot of it might have to do also with why they lose their tax exemption. If it was because of the reason they lost it, if it was for the same reason, rather, they lost it back in 1967 because L. Ron Hubbard was personally profiting and the IRS proved that. They had the the paper trail to show it's called enurement and it's illegal and it's not something that L. Ron Hubbard had a right to with the tax exemption. And uh, so they took it away. And so Miscavige, you know, could be uh, a similar case could be made in his direction about that. And um, if it were, and the IRS bought that, then that could be, if that were the reason, then the blame would be 100% on Miscavige's doorstep. But he wouldn't spin it that way. He'd have to obviously describe it some other way. But that also might, you know, but that could be publicly revealed, and then that could be a problem for him. So, So if that were the case, then Miscavige could have some internal PR issues, and Scientologists could turn on him, and that could be kind of nasty, kind of fast, because that might be the fastest way to get him out and somebody else steps up and takes over. Whether that new person is a, you know, good or bad person, well, they're going to be a Scientologist and they're going to be a Sea Org member. And um that's, you know, so kind of all bets are off as to what that is, what what would turn up there. Um, And that's just one conjecture, right? What if Miscavige were to be criminally indicted for something else? What if what if, what if, right? There's so many different scenarios that you can see that I can't really talk intelligently about all of them because there's too many of them. There's too many plausible ways that Scientology's tax exemption could actually be taken away if certain factors were to fall into play or certain other things were to happen. Tax-exempt status could be something that could be lost as a result of the Masterson case in a way further down the road, not next year, but down the road, if Scientology were found to be actively covering up criminal acts like sexual assault, then that would very much call into question their tax exemption, I believe. So, you know, so you have a lot of different avenues of, uh, of approach there. Um, Would Tom Cruise come out and speak publicly against any attack on the church or about tax exemption being lost? You bet he would. And anybody else that they could get. And this would where we would see the rubber meet in the road in terms of loyalty to Scientology, because all forces would be brought front and center. If they were fighting for tax exemption, Miscavige would would pull no punches, and it would be every hand on deck, and that would include the celebrities. So you would find out very quickly which celebrities are still around and willing to speak up for Scientology, and which aren't. Right now, they all get to kind of hide, but um, but if this were to happen, you know, you would see that very quickly, and I'm I'm sure Tom Cruise would be at the front of the line on that. Um, He's pretty fanatical, and and unless there's information otherwise, and so far there has not been one ounce or shred of evidence that Miscavige is anything, or sorry, Tom Cruise is anything but a religious fanatic. Um, And then as far as, um, yeah, it would definitely affect how people get paid and cost of services because money would become tighter and um, costs of services would be affected because people would not be able to write off those services on their taxes, on their tax forms. They would no longer be charitable donations. So that would be a huge blow to the church. And if the IAS, the International Association of Scientologists membership fund, if that were to to not, you know, uh, be subject to taxes, I believe then donations to that would become a lot less because people wouldn't be able to claim it on their taxes. So that's kind of some immediate fallout I see from that or some thoughts I have on that, and I hope that helps clarify that. Logamug. In John Atak's book, he describes how extremely rare class 12 auditors were. Assuming this was the case, why and what are the practical differences between class 12 and 11 auditors? All right. Thank you for this question. And um, I did do a couple videos breaking down all the levels of training in Scientology. And I'll put a link to that here as part of that uh, bridge to total freedom. I broke down both the auditing and training sides. So I have addressed this on video pretty thoroughly in those videos. But let me answer the question here as well to say that how it works is the top three class of auditors, there are t- there, the 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 auditor training system in Scientology is based on class. So class zero is your low level auditor uh, with an e meter doing actual Scientology auditing in a formal Scientology session. It's not off the cuff kind of stuff or Book One Dianetics stuff. It's actual formal Scientology auditing. You learn how to do that through this classification system that starts with a class zero auditor and goes all the way up to class 12. And and everything in between gives you more and more knowledge about the history, theory, and practice of Scientology auditing. Um, Class four auditors tend to be the most common. Class zero to four tend to be done in kind of a single Sort of shot you do, you know, you get up to class four, and that's kind of a resting place for a lot of people. That's where you've learned how to do all the Scientology grades and stuff. Anyway, getting up to class 10, 11, and 12, those are the top of the block, and those are only delivered. Those classes can only be taken by Sea Org members. So, first off, the entry of admission is you have to be in the Sea Org. And the other thing about that is that Class 10, 11, and 12 are only taught at FLAG, at the FLAG Land Base in Clearwater, Florida. I could not go as a Sea Org member to Los Angeles, to Copenhagen, to Sydney, or any other Sea Org place and learn how to be a Class 10, 11, or 12 auditor. Only FLAG. And originally, it was only under L. Ron Hubbard's tutelage on the the boats, on the ship. Uh, that Hubbard uh, ran, and he trained the original class 12s directly under his own interning and tutelage. And the reason that 10, 11, and 12 are grouped together like that is that they represent a series of actions called the L rundowns. That's what you learn how to audit as a class 10, 11, and 12 auditor, is you learn how to audit L10, L11, and L12 and those are the levels that you learn how to deliver. Those are only offered at FLAG. They are the single most expensive auditing Scientology delivers. It can cost upwards of $10,000, dollars $15,000 just for a 12 and a half hour block, a single intensive of Scientology auditing by a class 10, 11, or 12, mainly by a class 12, because you don't see 10s and 11s. You see them in training. But 12s are pretty much the guys who deliver all the L rundowns. So if you're going to pay for a class 12 auditor's time, you're going to be paying thousands and thousands of dollars for each intensive. And those intensives are used to deliver to you, not the lower level auditing you can get at your local org. You don't want to go pay class 12 rates for that. You pay for those L rundowns. And and sometimes you pay for those auditors to deliver whatever setup or prerequisite actions you're going to need to do those L rundowns. And I've talked about the L rundowns before. I won't repeat all that here. They are the super secret, super special, high uh, intensity rundowns that are supposed to supercharge you as a spiritual being. They are not the Oteals, They're not Xenu. They don't have to do with body thetans. The Ls have nothing to do with any of that. The Ls are their own thing. And they address very specific things that are supposed to be very, very deep core elements of you as a spiritual entity in this universe and that things that are holding you back that are deep, deep, deep down inside of you. Things like evil intentions, you know, overts that you've committed that are very, very serious way, way back in the the past. And the L's sort of address that and other attitudes and ideas and stuff that you have. So, so that's kind of what that auditing is. It's very weird. It, the actual L's have never actually leaked out of the church. Only people's recollections of them, people who were trained on them, like Karen Carriere. She is a class 12 auditor. And she, so she has all those secrets. She knows all those rundowns. So people like her have, from memory, written down the L's and posted them online. And that's what we know about them. But um, I'm just noting they've never actually leaked. And there are new Class 12 auditors now, but they are not trained through all the same levels that they used to have to go through in order to be Class 12 auditors now. So they're kind of what L. Ron Hubbard would call quickie Class 12s. That's the system that Miscavige has put in place now because he got rid of all the old Class 12s because they were loyal to Hubbard. They weren't loyal to him, right? They were trained by L. Ron Hubbard. They were around during L. Ron Hubbard's time. And these were OG Scientology auditors who had invested years and years and years of, it, of work into becoming the best auditors they could. And so Miscavige got rid of all those guys. And uh, and now uh, he's had to make new ones because you have to have class 12s in order to deliver those Ls and flag runs on those Ls. If they're not delivering those Ls, then there is a real problem uh, because that's the biggest moneymaker they've got. So anyway, that's kind of the picture with that. And I hope that helps clarify What that's all about. Paul, L. Ron Hubbard attempted to make the screenplay Revolt in the Stars into a film, which seems to be essentially the Xenu story. Surely, if this did end up being turned into a film, then everyone could see it, and this part of the so called secret levels would simply end up in the hands of everyone. Regardless of the nonsense of getting sick or dying if you are exposed to it and the obvious contradictions making this public, is there not a real chance that this would have led to even more public ridicule of Scientology brought upon by itself if they released it as a film as opposed to exposure by others? Also, would it not reduce the cash flow if OT3 is basically available to all? Who is going to pay thousands for what would end up being a public DVD? Okay, now I get to pontificate about Revolt in the Stars and talk to you guys about this because I finally I finally sat down and read it, and it actually isn't a screenplay. I've been describing it for years as a screenplay because I never actually went and read the whole thing. I knew about it. I knew what it covered in a way but it was really good to dive in because what i found out is that it's actually written more like a novella or a short story including thoughts and ideas and things that people are having it's not a screenplay not even and it's not what you call a treatment it is awful i mean like battlefield earth awful like it's bad it would be ah, it would be awful. So PR-wise, they definitely would not be doing themselves any favors telling this story. And the way it's told is absolutely moronically, idiotically stupid. Um, Exactly as I debunked in my book on OT3. Like, why doesn't OT3 actually make any sense? Because it's logistically impossible. To take billions of people and transport them to a planet in airplanes, throw them all in front of volcanoes and blow them all up and get that all done within less than a year's time. I mean, give me a break. And even the way Hubbard describes it in the, in the screen, in the, in the whatever, the revolt in the stars, whatever it is, I'll just call it a story how you know how he describes it in there is just as bad as how he describes it in the actual original OT3 materials so it's it's just childishly stupid storytelling now that sort of creative criticism to the side now i now i want to differentiate and make and and i've said this before many times but now i get to harp on it a little bit more the important thing about OT3 is not Xenu. It's the body thetans. It's the clustering of thetans together and the fact that those make up your body now. That's the part that's scary and freaky and is supposed to cause you to get pneumonia and die. Not the Xenu story, which sounds and looks exactly like a science fiction story. And here's how I can say that is because Revolt in the Stars is just the science fiction part. It doesn't talk about or mention anywhere in the story. Thetans, spiritual entities, body thetans, clustering, none of that. None of the implanting is there that I saw. I mean, they just blew everybody up. They, they, Hubbard creates a story where Zenu, as this galactic overlord, as this sole ruler of this, you know, I think it's fifty-six planets, is what he puts in the in the story. Um, this ruler is this is this tyrannic despot, and he gathers all these people up using renegades, exactly as described in the OT three write up. And he um, brings them all to Earth and he blows them all up at Mount Shasta, Mount Hood, Mount Vesuvius, Mount, you know, every volcano Hubbard could name, even though this happened so many millions of years ago that those volcanoes didn't even exist and the Earth wasn't even the same. But we're not going to get, we're not going to have to debunk it at that level. That happens in the story, but none of the spiritual part of that OT3 narrative, the Scientology narrative, part of that picture, that's not in the story. So the idea of the Revolt in the Stars was Hubbard was going to use the story, the sci-fi part of it, to get everybody all riled up and re-stimulated and, oh my God, and that would attract their attention, he thought, to L. Ron Hubbard and his other works in Scientology. And then they would come into Scientology and learn about Thetans and their own spiritual nature, and progress up the bridge and go clear. And then they would get to OT3, and they would read this, you know, volcanoes and blowing people up and Xenu, and they'd go, oh, this is like that Revolt in the Stars movie, except all this other spiritual stuff is now being added into it. And it turns out that the big uh, reveal, that the big punchline at the end isn't that Xenu blew everything up, it's that we were all there and as spiritual entities, we were clustered together and we were stuck together and we are now all batshit crazy because we are just one of many entities that make up our body, that make up who we are as human beings, that makes us crazy and act crazy toward ourselves and toward each other. See, it's all the spiritual stuff. That's the really crazy, damaging, horrible part of that story, not the sci-fi side of it. So even before I, you know, so anyway, not to, anyway, so there you go. (sighs) So that's, um, so that's why The Revolt in the Stars could have been made into a movie. And theoretically, if David Miscavige really wanted to, you know, uh, shoot himself in the head and throw Scientology over the cliff then they could invest in making that into a movie. But I think Miscavige already learned from Battlefield Earth that that is not a very good marketing strategy, and it did not do them any favors to try to bring L. Ron Hubbard's childishly stupid storytelling to the screen and and try to create a blockbuster on the order of Star Wars or Star Trek. And that was that was what Elron Hubbard had in mind when he wrote Revolt in the Stars was um, I mean he even twisted it all around to make it a hero story and he uses the same hero and heroine that he uses in every one of his stories including the whole Mission Earth series. Those two archetypes, those two tropes, those those sort of stereotypes are used by Hubbard over and over and over again in his stories. The dashing blonde hero and and the beautiful, uh, you know, vixen, minx, uh, heroine, female uh, sidekick and, you know, and all the cast of criminals and characters and, oh God, Revolt in the Stars is just so awful. It was really hard to read. It really was, guys. Uh, the sacrifices I make. <laughs> anyway... Um, let's just see, I'm going to see if i missed anything else on this. Um, yeah, I think I've, I think I've described the situation. So I hope that that's clear. And if there's anything confusing about what I said here or anything, just, just let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll clarify it. Peter, recently I see more individual Scientologists communicate publicly on social media about Scientology. For example, a Charlie Wakeley talking on YouTube about how he uses Scientology in his life and interviewing others or spread a smile videos posted by Scientologists on Facebook and TikTok, as pointed out by Tony Ortega in his recent article, Blame the Media for Fake, Fake Virus News. In my perception, this didn't happen so much in the past. I assume that this would be discouraged by the Scientology organization. Individual Scientologists quote-unquote, talking Scientology to the world would mean that they also get responses, and Xenu forbid, this might lead to an actual conversation and some out-of-the-bubble thinking. Probably the videos aren't so obvious Scientology, but Charlie? Isn't he guilty of some big no-nos? Verbal tech, talking about his case at a session, inciting others to do the same? Thoughts? Hey, Peter, thank you for this. And I actually sat on this question for a while because I kind of wanted to see how this would play out. And I looked back up on Charlie Wakeley's videos. He hasn't posted anything in the last year. And I imagine that he's done posting. He was interviewing Scientologists. He was talking uh, about Scientology and how it might apply in life. And he was doing, in other words, what any Scientologist YouTuber or person who wants to get Scientology out of the big wide world should be doing, which is talking Scientology publicly and arguing it and debating it and bringing it up and sharing it with people and sharing the wins and successes of it. This was what led me to the internet was the desire to try to use the internet when I was in Scientology to spread the good news and spread the wins and talk about it publicly in in a form that you know that people can interact with and, and get curious about. But as you pointed out, what ends up happening is you got to turn the comments off right away because people just pile on with all the truth about Scientology, and these guys cannot engage at that level. They cannot uh, entertain criticism of its, of the subject, and they can't deal honestly with that criticism if they do sillily try to engage. So Wakeley's account looks like it's not shut down. The channel's still there, but there's no new content, and I'm not think- I'm thinking there isn't going to be. I think he did get shut down. And I think that um, uh, others who try to take a stab at that without doing it through official church channels uh, do get shut down, and they end up having to maybe even shut down their channels. We'll see. As far as the um, more official, um, you know, spread a smile videos and stuff, if those are officially you know, endorsed by the church, then that means the church has put some program together and they're trying to use the internet in order to create, you know, good public relations. And of course, you know, as any uh, bright, savvy organization would these days, that's the smart thing to do. Scientology is grossly out of step, In their entire media, they they are the most unsavvy media people I, you know, I've ever had anything to do with Um, because, because Miscavige purposefully got rid of anybody and everybody who knows anything about it. He doesn't care. You know, marketing Scientology, the big wide world is very, very low on his list of things to do. So um, anyway, so that's why I think you're not going to see a whole lot more of this. I think it was a little flash in the pan, maybe during the pandemic or before, um, right before. And it was an effort on the part of honest, you know, gung-ho, interested Scientologists who who wanted to get the word out there, but the church is not interested in that. So Um, So who knows? Who knows if that itself might cause its own level of, you know, some cognitive dissonance with Charlie and others on that line. All right, let's do some flash answers. JAC, I'm interested in understanding what, if any, tax deductions are associated with parishioner course payments. Do they qualify as charitable contributions? I suppose they do, but it's hardly charitable. Well, you answered your own question. That is, that is absolutely right. They are able to take tax donations or deductions based on donations they make to the church for services such as auditing and coursework, as well as membership fees to the International Association of Scientologists, as well as royalty fees or fee not royalty fees, but fees paid to, uh, I think, membership dues to, to WISE and ABLE and stuff like that, the front groups. I think those are all certified as tax deductible as well. Adria Vici-Haloub, what's your favorite non-original trilogy Star Wars media? If it's a serial media, for example, books, graphic novels, TV series, etc., is there a specific title slash volume slash episode that stands out as the best one? For me, it's The Mandalorian, both seasons. I'm absolutely floored by how good Jon Favreau is at understanding the core elements of, of Star Wars at its original Basic level. It's not supposed to be about social values and social justice and this and that and the other thing. It's it's about serialized entertainment, as told back in the days of Lash Larue, but brought into a science fiction realm. And that's what the Mandalorian is, and it's awesome for it. So that is what I uh, that is the the non original trilogy Star Wars that I like the most. Travis, what's your favorite conspiracy theory? To be honest, my favorite one, the one that I think is perhaps just the goofiest shit I've ever heard is that L. Ron Hubbard was replaced as a body by a body double in 1974, and that that was done by the CIA as a as a targeted op to take over Scientology so that they, the CIA could control remote viewing in the OT levels and make their own OT soldiers and this sort of core of OT supermen within the United States government to uh, spy on uh, its enemies remotely with telepathically, and even be able to influence things, uh, you know, from the other side of the world. I I think that's awesome. And on top of that, conspiracy theory comes another one that David Miscavige was a CIA plant designed specifically to take Scientology and run it off a cliff, and uh, and dispose of it so that the government could have it all for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening to me blabble on here. Uh, I hope that I will see you guys next week. And, of course, if you're loving this channel or liking what I'm doing here, please consider supporting me through Patreon, PayPal, or otherwise. I definitely appreciate the love. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.